Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. In this special episode of Babel, I talk to John about how COVID-19 is affecting the Middle East. As we're all working from home and as the CSIS building is closed for the foreseeable future, we're all grappling with how to shift through the hurricane of information we're dealing with. We're here today to break down what you need to know about COVID in the Middle East and what you should be focusing on. John, what impact is COVID-19 having on the Middle East? The Middle East is a region that was already fragile in many ways. And COVID-19 combined with uh, a sharp drop in oil prices, which are related to COVID-19 plunging demand for oil, um, is is a one-two punch that the region is going to have a hard time getting through. You know, this is a place where people can't really telework. You have a large informal sector, people who are not regular salaried employees. I mean, all those people are profoundly affected by the sorts of disruption that that COVID-19 is bringing around the world. If your options are either a mass stress on the healthcare system or people dying right and left, and, and again, creating all these internal tensions within society, it seems to me that Part of the nature of politics is it will manifest itself in politics and governments will have a set of challenges on their hands that, that they haven't had to deal with. How are different countries handling the spread of COVID-19? There are countries that seem to be very aggressively policing it and treating people, and that's wealthier countries in the Gulf, like the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Um, there are countries that seem not to really have a handle on it. And frankly, those are some of the middle-income countries, countries like Egypt, which surely have a growing number of infections, but no clear capacity to either control the population or to provide medical care for all the people who are going to need it. What countries are hardest hit right now? Well, it's hard to say because there aren't really enough tests to understand how widespread the disease is. Uh, Egypt, for example, has a few hundred confirmed cases. An epidemiologist said uh, about a week ago that there are up to 20,000 cases largely undiagnosed, and the Egyptian government's uh, response to it was to crack down on the journalists who tried to spread that information and, and, and pull that person's credentials. Uh, there's a large expectation that Egypt has a much larger problem than it's admitting to, partly because of a sense that that Egypt early on didn't want to spoil its tourism business and tried to downplay the infection, even though a large number of both tourists on Nile cruise boats as well as the crew uh, had been infected with COVID-19. But also, frankly, a a sense in Egypt that people really don't want to hear the bad news. Um, And so the government is trying not to give bad news and is trying to downplay the bad news. And when you're dealing with a a highly contagious infectious disease like that, that means that in many cases, you're just, you're not dealing with the entirety of the problem. You're in denial about the entirety of the problem. Does Egypt have the same capacity to deal with COVID as countries with higher state capacity like Saudi Arabia or the UAE? Clearly, there's not the same 
uh, investment in health infrastructure. Egypt has 100 million citizens. The UAE has a million citizens. Uh, the UAE, I'm sure, is going to prioritize treating citizens of the UAE, and there are going to be uh, foreign workers from places like India, Bangladesh, uh, the Philippines, throughout the Gulf, who I'm sure are going to have a harder time getting high-quality medical care. But I think these countries have certainly invested in the last decade in trying to improve their domestic healthcare capacity. How that's going to play out, how much infection there will be, how much the the efforts to have people self-quarantine will be effective, we don't know yet. We don't have any indication that they've been overwhelmed as yet. But what we've seen in places like Italy and France is that the need to get ahead of the curve sometimes falls short. Should we talk Iran? We certainly can talk Iran. Iran has been devastated by this. Again, questions about how frank the government is being about the levels of infections. We certainly have seen a lot of senior Iranian officials come down with COVID-19. What this means in the longer term for Iran is unclear because Iran is dealing with really three challenges at once. One is a a COVID-19 public health challenge. One is the challenge of of U.S.-led sanctions on Iran. And the third is the drop in the oil price, which is now trading below $30 when just a month ago it was trading above $60. How Iran deals with these three simultaneous challenges is unclear. Arguably, This represents an opportunity for U.S. diplomacy with Iran because the Iranians need help. And the U.S. certainly could reduce sanctions, provide sanctions relief, provide medical supplies, ease the provision of medical supplies, all sorts of things uh, in exchange for any number of things the U.S. might want from Iran. But we don't see any signs that that diplomacy is going on. We don't see a lot of signs the U.S. government sees it as an opportunity just you know, as Secretary Pompeo was just in Afghanistan and trying to move forward things there, there's an Iranian role in trying to to improve conditions in Afghanistan. I think Iran could be helpful. I'm not sure that the Trump administration is seeing this as the opportunity it might be not to conclude a, a final and comprehensive deal with Iran, but to move things forward incrementally. I don't think we're going to be able to get a comprehensive deal before the election, but could you do something about release of prisoners, begin to build some momentum, do some sanctions relief? I think that that opportunity is certainly there for the administration to seize on. Are there opportunities that the United States might be missing, but that other outside powers could be taking advantage of? How are China and Russia acting in the Middle East right now? China has been trying all over the world to to gain some PR points. They're extending medical care, they're giving supplies, they're giving advice about how they turn the corner on this uh, on this virus. I have not seen Russia playing the same role. And frankly, I don't know how Russia is going to be affected by this. I haven't seen a lot of reporting on it. Maybe there's not a lot of information available. But China, having turned the corner, is seeking to to burnish prestige by now reaching out and being helpful. And and there have been some interesting commentaries from the U.S. side of people who say it's it's really remarkable the U.S. is not playing 
a leading role organizing the world, providing relief, providing sympathy. I haven't seen a lot of reports that that President Trump is on the phone talking to other world leaders. It's easy to forget that in almost any similar situation, the U.S. would be extremely outgoing trying to rally world support. And it's important to recall as well that right after 9-11, the world rallied behind the United States. We're not seeing the same international solidarity whether that represents an aberration or whether it represents a new normal is something we're going to have to to see in the coming years. What do you think is the potential best case scenario? And what do you think is the potential worst case scenario? The best case scenario really is a a health-driven scenario. And and I'm, I'm not qualified to talk about the public health aspects of this. It seems the worst case scenario is that this provokes a new round of turmoil in the region, partly because of the the, the death toll that might result from this virus, partly because you have a a set of uprisings of people who say that that, uh, relief was distributed inequitably, that this is a sign of the unfair stratification of society, that people feel there's nothing left to lose. People feel that all the concerns they had about poor governance were borne out. Um, I could see a lot of ways in which uh, this reinforces an endemic sense of failure in governments in the Middle East. And what comes, not in the next month, but over the next several years, is a sort of resurgence of the anger that accompanied uh, the Arab Spring, with the difference being, A, the region may have less money to buy off consent, but also people who are less dissuaded that in so few places has the Arab Spring worked out for people? I mean, we have three ongoing revolutions, civil wars, really, in the Middle East uh, that resulted from the Arab Spring. Tunisia is sort of the best case scenario, and Tunisia is not a totally happy case. But people may say, I don't care anymore. I don't care if we descend into Yemen. I don't care if we descend into Syria. I don't care if we descend into Libya, because this is really intolerable. And I could imagine in a year's time that there are places where we're in that position and that even if you say the U.S. should be de-emphasizing its role in the Middle East, an upheaval like that would affect a wide range of American interests. It may be that that these trends are too large for the U.S. to shape them very much, but it's still important to note that the region may be reaching out and shaping the U.S. Trotsky said, you may not be interested in the revolution, but the revolution is interested in you. And this may be the case of the United States, that the U.S. may feel it doesn't really have a, a dog in the fight that's going on in Middle Eastern states as it tries to pivot toward the Pacific. But even as the Pacific gets all of its energy from, or a lot of its energy from the Middle East, as as the world is affected by turmoil in the Middle East, it may well affect the U.S. in profound ways. And the U.S. has to to think about a responsible to protect U.S. interests and also to advance U.S. interests as a a leader of the world, which I think has been an important role the U.S. has, has played in many ways uh, for 75 years, not so much as an act of charity, but as an act of self-interest. So it sounds like you're saying COVID is exacerbating already existing crises in the region, and whether or not we like it, it's going to have an effect on U.S. interests. That said, what should I be taking away from today's conversation? You know, it's too early to say what the course of the disease will be. It's too early to say how governments will be responding to it. But it does seem to me that over the next six months to a year, the equation is going to change. 
There may be some success stories. There may be governments that have been able to handle this successfully. I expect there will be governments that handle this unsuccessfully. I expect that there will be countries which are essentially put under quarantine because the entire country has been unable to deal with this and other countries won't want to have an interchange with it. All those things will make the fault lines in these countries open up. And I expect that over the next year, uh, these will be the principal challenges uh, to regional governments, not the international threats that people worry about, not strict economic development, which governments have been focused on for some time, but managing public expectations, managing government performance, sustaining consent of a population that may turn increasingly desperate as this sweeps through societies. Thank you so much for joining me today on the special COVID episode of Babel, Translating the Middle East. Thank you, McKinley. Join us next week for a regular meze called Iraq's Explosive Plague. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find more analysis about this topic linked in the show notes. And you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.